How many of you ever did chores as a kid? How many of you ever did chores? Raise your hand. Oh, that's all? There's only about 80% of you raising your hands. My goodness. You had some good, uh, you had a good home where you didn't have to do much, I guess. Well, hey, I did chores as a kid, and I'll tell you, I could not stand chores. I mean, I think every kid, when they start doing chores, they realize, wow, this is a bum deal. I have to work at home. Uh, and parents, you know, parents are getting wiser these days. Parents throughout the centuries have developed really, really good techniques to instill this duty of the chore in, in the child. They have developed techniques, these parents have, to make it easier, if you will, for a child to do his or her chores. And I've been thinking about these techniques, and I've been watching some of the parents even in this uh, room today, and I've, I've come up with a couple of their techniques that I find are kind of interesting. The first technique is this. They trick them into doing chores. Trick them. Now, let me explain what that, what that looks like. Well, how many of you, now sing along with me if you know this song. Ready? Clean up, clean up. Everybody everywhere, clean up, clean up, everybody do your share. How many of you know that song? And how many of you were singing about none of you? I've heard this song coming from the parents in this church, and that is nothing but a dirty trick. They are singing songs about chores these days. I mean, what is that? I can't believe it. I mean, that... That's, that's the, the biggest irony to me, singing a song about chores. Or how about this? How about reverse psychology? Have you ever heard a parent do this? Oh, Johnny, I bet you're not strong enough to bring in the groceries. And little Johnny's thinking, well, yes, I am. And he goes out to the car and brings in the groceries. Boom. Mission accomplished, right? Well, parents over the centuries, as I said, are, are really developing these techniques and they're starting to perfect them, if you will. But, you know, the kids, the kids are wising up too these days. The kids are starting to ask the question, what's in it for me? What's in it for me if I'm going to do these chores? What do I get if I'm going to complete these household tasks? And so, in years past, Parents had to resort to nickels and dimes. And all of a sudden, little Johnny wouldn't mow the lawn unless there was a nickel in it for him. Or perhaps he wouldn't uh, clean up his room unless his dad promised him a dime or a quarter. Well, as you know, uh, the federal chore chairman in Washington has raised the chore rate. And, uh, you know, I was talking to Scott Eichler the other day. He said that Sierra wanted $50 to clean her room. I couldn't believe it. Uh, we were just, we couldn't believe how high the chore rates are going. But, you know, we got a good laugh because his little Sam came in and offered 30 and he, and he took it. You know, he got 20 bucks off. Oh, that's Sam, boy. Always a businessman. What's in it for me? What do I get out of it? You know, this is the same question that the Israelites are asking God in Malachi. They're saying, God, what am I going to get in return if I follow you? 
If I'm going to keep loving you, trusting you, and serving you, what am I going to get in return? And as we've been going through this series in Malachi, we found that the Israelites have not realized God's benefits toward them. The Israelites are unaware of God's blessing and God's favor toward them. They're already getting something in return. They just don't have eyes to see it. And today we're going to see how God desires to bless Israel, to give them what they want in the end, but only on the condition that they will return to Him and turn from their sins. If they want something out of it, they're going to have to turn from their wickedness. Now let's look at Malachi chapter 3. We're going to be in verse 7, and you should have a handout. I want to read through this, uh, this whole text. There's a number of verses here, about 11 verses we're going to go through, but we're going to break it down. So uh, hang in there. I'm going to read it once through for context to give you an idea of where we are here. So let's take a look. Malachi chapter 3, verse 7. We're picking up mid-sentence here. He's speaking. God is speaking through Malachi toward the Jews. He says, Yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, In what way shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings? You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will be no room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of the ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed. And you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept His ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed. For those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. But then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before Him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on His name. They shall be Mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them My jewels. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask for your wisdom and your guidance as we study your word. Help us to draw from it meaning and 
and purpose for our lives. That we might look upon the situation between God and Israel in the 5th century B.C. and that we could extract from that principles that, that we could all learn from. Help us as we study together today in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's look at verse 7. Let's narrow in. Let's get this, uh, let's get this started. Verse 7 at the very top. Here we go. Yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Speaking to the Jews here. We've seen this throughout the book of Malachi. They have done terrible things before the Lord. Wickedness, sin, defiled offerings. The people are unrepentant in wickedness. But God says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? Okay, we see uh, one word here highlighted three times. What's that word? Return. Okay, return. Now, when you see repetition like that, it really should uh, ring, a, ring a bell in your mind. You need to look at that word and you need to think, well, what, what is this word return? So I wanted to give you a, a quick understanding of the word return. In the Hebrew, the word is shuv. Shuv. And it's a very common word. And the definitions vary from returning from a location, like returning from a trip, to turning around, to repenting. It can be anywhere from return to turn to repent. And in this case, we're probably looking at more of a turning of a repentance, of a repentance toward God. God is saying, if you will repent toward me, I will turn back to you. If you'll repent toward me, I will turn back to you. But then the Israelites come back with the question and they say, well, have we really turned away from you, God? In what way have we turned away? And this has been the, the mindset, the attitude, the sentiment underlying all of their questions in Malachi. They don't buy into what God is declaring about them. They don't believe that they're in sin. They're too stubborn and too callous to understand it. But God says, return, shuv, return to me, and I will turn to you. And yet the Jews say, how have we gone astray? So God's going to tell them. Pick it up in verse 8. How have we gone astray, God? God says, okay, here it is. I'm going to lay out one of the many items. He says this, will a man rob God? In verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and in offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. What had Israel done? Israel had robbed God of tithes and offerings. They had formerly been faithful to God but had now determined that the sacrifices, the tithes, the money that they were giving God wasn't worth it. There was no return, at least in their eyes. All of this sacrifice, all of these tithes, all of these grain offerings that we give to your house, God, we haven't seen anything in return. So what did they decide to do? Pull back. They decided to pull back the tithes. They decide to hold on to their offerings and to pull back the sacrifices and instead to give God second best. Their second best. 
What's in it for me? How will I benefit? I don't see your goodness toward me as I tithe, as I give. And the whole nation, it says, withdrew their giving to God. And God says, as a result of this, they were cursed. Now, what is, what is this curse? God's people cursed. We need to take a look at this. God initially doesn't name the curse. Now, we're going to see it in just a minute. There are actually a variety of curses upon these Israelites at this time. But perhaps He doesn't name the curse initially because the people are well aware of the fact that they are, in fact, cursed. They are frustrated with God for a variety of reasons that we're about to see. And God doesn't even need to name the curse. He says, you're cursed and you know it. They had been crying out for justice, for God to show Himself. And yet, to them, He remained silent and they felt cursed. How were they cursed? Back in chapter 1, we learned that the Israelites had... Oh, excuse me, uh, I missed my spot there. I'm sorry, the remedy for the curse. Sorry, sorry. The remedy for the curse. God says, okay, you're cursed. We're going to see what the specifics of that curse is in just a moment. But first, God's going to give the remedy. He's going to not identify the curse. He's going to give the remedy for the curse first. Take a look at verse 10. Take a look at verse 10. He says this, if you'll do this, I will reverse the curse. Verse 10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now that word storehouse, this is really, really fascinating. That word storehouse was an area of the temple of God that was set aside for the tithes and the offerings. It was a room, a variety of rooms rather, that were set aside for God's tithes and offerings to be brought into. And those same tithes and offerings were used to preserve the religious activity in the temple. They fed the priests. They allowed a segment of the people, the Levites, to go about the work of God without having to go out and get a job in the field. They had set aside a religious group within Israel, the Levites, to tend to the temple. And the tithes and offerings that were brought into the storehouse were used to nourish and allow those same Levites, those same priests, to serve God without having to get another job. Much like we do today with our pastors. We pay pastors today so that they can concentrate on the work of the ministry and so that they can feed us. So they can teach us and counsel us and give 110% to the business of the church. And that's what's going on here in Israel in the 5th century B.C. The storehouse was used to tend to the Levites, the priests. However, however, in Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah was written probably just prior to Malachi. So we're looking at the same time frame, right around 450 B.C. And in the book of Nehemiah, they say something about this storehouse, this storeroom of God in the temple. Take a look at what it says about the storehouse. Nehemiah chapter 13. It says this, Eliashab the priest, he was actually the high priest of Israel. Eliashab the priest 
having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah. Now, Tobiah was a pagan Ammonite bureaucrat. He was a politician that was not a Jew and was really hindering the Jews from building the temple, from building the walls. And look what happens. Eliashab was allied with Tobiah and he had prepared a large room for him where previously they had stored, look at this, the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and the oil. He put a room up for him where God's tithes and offerings were to be. And I, Nehemiah, having come back from Jerusalem and discovering this, look what he says. He says, And I also realized that the portions set aside for the Levites and the singers and the priests were what? Were not given to them. Each of them had gone back to his own field. That's what's going on. That's what's going on in Malachi. The storehouse of God, where the tithes and offerings are, is so empty that they can put a pagan bureaucrat up to live in that same room. The storehouses of God are so empty in the 5th century B.C. that they can house pagan politicians in those same storerooms. So few tithes and offerings were coming into God's house. And as a result, the priests, the Levites, had to go out and work in the fields, which meant the ministry of the temple was going to suffer. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, if Pastor Arch had to go out and become a used car salesman, that would cause me to write a check to the church right away. You know, I mean, these priests are designed to work in the church, designed to work in the temple. And when they're not fed, when they're not provided for, then they have to go out and get out of the work and the ministry here suffers. The ministry suffers. And as we can see in Malachi, and then all of a sudden the priests got corrupt. Then they had double the problems. There were significant religious problems in Israel as a result of the tithes being withheld. They were not tithing. They were housing the pagan politicians. But God says, bring them back into my storeroom. Bring it back. And what will I do? Take a look at the rest of verse 10. What will I do? And try me now in this, God says, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will be no room to receive it. A little bit of a juxtaposition here. There's plenty of room in the storehouses now, but if you bring back my tithes, there will be no room left. There's plenty of room now, and I'm asking you to bring, them, bring it back. Bring back the tithes and offerings, and you know what? You're going to be blessed so much that you won't have enough room to house my blessings. Is that a promise for us today? Well, not entirely, not necessarily. We can't just pull from this that if we give to God, we're automatically going to get. I'm not, I'm not up here to espouse that doctrine. That's not necessarily true. However, we see it happening here in Malachi. God is offering blessing to those who give faithfully to Him. 
And I believe that to be true of our God today. I think we see patterns in the New Testament that says, hey, if you give, God will inevitably bless your lives. If you give with a cheerful heart, if you give faithfully to God and His church, God will turn that for good. And you will receive blessing. There won't be enough room to house that blessing. Now we get to the curse. Now we're finally identifying what the curse is. Look at verse 11. He says, this is the curse that I want to reverse. This is the curse that I want to take away from you. Look what's happening. He says, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he or it will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land says the Lord of hosts. What was happening? What was the curse? The Bible speaks of a devourer. and says that he or it will no longer be able to devour the fields if you bring the tithes and offerings back. This devourer is most likely actually just a reference to locusts. It doesn't have a particular person in mind. It has the idea of these insects were destroying the, the crops. That's most likely what's going on here. We're simply seeing an instance in which Israel's crops are going to waste by the hands of locusts, by the hands of insects. Their crops were failing. Their vineyards were failing. And again, there's a lot of irony here. The same crops, the same vineyards that the Jews were holding back from God, that they were pulling back on their tithes and offerings out of their crops and vineyards, those same basic things, their food, as they pull back, God says, I'm pulling it back too then. If you hold back from me, then your land is going to be held back from you. You pull back on the crops and the wine, I'm going to pull back on your crops and your wine. The locusts were devouring what they had. And in that case, it was their food. It was their livelihood. It was the very basis and foundation of their society. They had to eat. They had to eat. And they weren't getting good harvests. He offers them blessing, though. Bring back the tithes, bring back the offerings, and I'll do two things. Number one, the crops will come to full harvest. The crops will come to full harvest. I will rebuke the devourer. And then secondly, look at the second one in verse 12. It says, all nations will call you blessed, and you will be a delightful land. And for the Jews, this was a great blessing. This is something they really wanted. They wanted the recognition of other nations, other pagan nations, to look upon them and say, wow, look at Israel. You see, at this time, the Jewish nation was pretty much ransacked. It was was in upheaval. The economy was bad. The politics were bad. The crops were failing. They had hardly no military, nothing to defend themselves against the, the other nations in the surrounding areas. And for God to say, I will bless you because other nations will call you blessed. And they will look upon you and say, wow, what a delightful land. 
That was a big compliment to Israel. That was something that they wanted. They wanted the recognition of other nations. They wanted the recognition that they were blessed by God. Okay. We've seen the first part here. The first part of what's in it for me. We saw about tithes and we saw about offerings. The Jews said, what's in it for me? If I give, I want to get back. What's in it for me? Now we're going to see them saying what's in it for me a second time. Take a look at verse 13. Verse 13. God says this. He starts out and he says, Oh, your words, your words, Israel, have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? Your words, your criticisms, your allegations have been harsh against me. How have we done this? Verse 14. You have said, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept His ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed. For those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. Here's their second claim. God, what is in it for me? What's in it for me if I serve you? What's in it for me if I keep your laws? I don't see the benefit. I don't see the return. Instead, I see the proud, the pagans around me being raised up and blessed. Instead, I look around and I'm I'm mourning all day long because of this. I see the wicked are raised up in verse 15. The wicked are tempting you, God, and they're going free. They're getting off the hook. Why should I serve you when those around me who do wickedly seem to be blessed? Common question. Why do good things happen to bad people? Profit. The word profit there. And I think we centered in on it. What profit is it? That word profit, we actually had a scripture reading today in Psalm 119.36. That word profit has to do with selfish gain. It's about me. It's about what I want. My profit. The Jews were saying, I want something back for me. What's in it for me? And you know, I want to... I want to follow a rabbit trail here for a minute. I want to veer off the course. This is related, um, but, I, but it's, it's something that is, that's near and dear to my heart that I want to address about this idea of selfish gain and of asking God what's in it for me. Um, I've been thinking a lot about need-based relationships with God. What I mean by need-based relationships with God is that is to say, a person, and some of us have done this, and some of us still do this, and I still do this from time to time. Sometimes a person gets to that point in their life where they're saying, God, if you don't meet my needs, I'm just going to turn my back on you. If you don't take care of this request, or meet this need, or fill this void, then I'm not going to serve you. I'm not going to give. I'm going to take back what I was giving to you. This idea of God filling our needs, filling our voids, being at our beck and call, if you will. 
And when I interact with unbelievers, inevitably I hear them saying something like this. An unbeliever will often tell me that I don't need God. They say, I don't need God. I'm happy with my life the way it is. I'm a relatively good person. I have a good job. I have a nice home. I have no voids in my life. Therefore, I don't need God. Unfortunately, the person who says this, the unbeliever who says this, usually does so because they've heard a presentation of the gospel which focuses on needs. What I mean to say is they usually hear their Christian friends saying, well, you should become a Christian because God will fill the void in your heart. Or you should become a Christian because God will meet all of your needs. He'll fill the emotional voids. And they think, well, that's fine and dandy, but I don't have a void. I'm content with my life as it is. I want to say this very clearly, and I I wrote it up there as well. We have a serious problem when we present God to unbelievers as merely one who meets emotional and physical needs. When we present God as merely an emotional or physical benefit to the unbeliever, that leaves room for the unbeliever to say, well, thanks, But no thanks. I'm already happy with my life the way it is. When we present God and we evangelize others and our primary technique is to tell them over and over again how God can fill the void, that leaves room for them to say, well, thank you, but I don't have a void today. I've come to realize that we cannot merely present God as a filler of voids. God is much more than that. We must present God as the truth. As the truth. When we say to an unbeliever that the God of the Bible is the true God of the Bible, and that is why you should believe in Him and in His Son, Jesus Christ, They don't have room to say, well, thanks, but that doesn't fill my need. No, no, no. We made a truth claim right there. We said this is true. The God of the Bible is the true God. And what does that do? That compels the unbeliever to look upon that statement and to say, okay, I believe that, or no, I'm going to say that that's a false statement about God. That compels them to make a decision rather than shy away and say, well, I don't have any voids. I don't have any needs. Ladies and gentlemen, when you evangelize, when you present God to other people, don't merely present Him as a filler of needs, a filler of voids. He does that. But also present Him as the truth. You should believe in Him because it's true. Period. And that compels the issue. That forces them to consider it with more weight. How does this relate? Well, Israel, in 3.14, verse 14, Israel was looking in the face of God and saying, what's the benefit? How does it meet my needs that I serve God? What's in it for me? And because, because they didn't have an answer, 
their decision was to say, fine, I don't need him. Because they didn't stop and think, wait a minute, this is the true God. Because they didn't consider him to be the truth and not just a filler of needs. They walked away from him. Back to the back to the text here. The only thing that happens. Um, let's move on. Verse sixteen. Verse sixteen. Then those who feared the Lord. Okay, now we see a contrast. Now all of a sudden we're going to open our eyes and we're going to see a brand new group coming out of Israel. There are some who are going to pay heed to God's call to follow Him, to stay faithful to Him. We're going to see a remnant. Take a look. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord listened and He heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before Him for those who feared the Lord and who meditate on His name. Some took heed to God's rebuke. And they began to speak to one another. And as a group... They decided to return to Shuv to God. As we saw in verse 7, return to me and I'll return to you. They decided in verse 16, this remnant, this small group of Israel, hey, we have been doing wrong. We have been acting wickedly. We are going to now turn to God. What we have here, ladies and gentlemen, and I use this word sparingly, but this is a revival. This is a revival. I don't know if you've ever been to a revival of sorts in a, in a big white tent, as Billy Graham used to go around the country and do those things. But, but this is a moment in time in which you can underline in your Bible, here is a revival within Israel. There is a group of people who have gone from stubborn and calloused hearts to repentant and soft hearts before God. A revival. And God listens to this remnant. He hears their discussion And what happens? A book is written about it. Now, when historians... uh, How many of you like to read history? Anybody? Any history readers out there? Okay. When historians write a book about, let's say, a president, you very rarely will find them commenting about the president's favorite tie color or... uh, or how much brush President Bush cleared from his Texas ranch in his eight years in office. You're probably not going to hear those things. Why? They're not important. It's not very important. It's not really important what color tie President Bush wore in office. It's not really important how much brush he cleared from his Texas ranch. It's not really that significant. It's not worth writing about. Instead, Presidential historians focus on the big events. For Bush, it's going to be, how did he handle 9-11? How did he do in Iraq? How did he do in Afghanistan? All these questions. The big items. They're going to define the current president's legacy. They're the big events. They're worth writing about. And that's where you're going to find them in books about President Bush. What you have here is you have a significant event. So significant that a book is being written about it. 
A book is being written before God's presence about this remnant of Jews who have turned to God in faith. And I ask you the question, is your faith strong enough, faithful enough, committed enough that a book would be written about it? That's, uh, that's what's happening here. God is seeing a remnant of Israel with faith that is fervent. It is so fervent that a book is recorded about it. Is our faith that significant? Could a book be written about our trust, our commitment to God? As an aside, uh, it's actually kind of hard to say who wrote this book. If you look at the text, some, some of you might instinctively think, well, the Jews wrote this. And the other half of you might be thinking, well, it was written in heaven. Uh, the text somewhat indicates it was probably written before God in heaven. The word so there kind of connects, connects the, uh, the two verses together. He saw, he saw, he heard, he listened, and then so a book was written about it. It seems to indicate that that was most likely a heavenly document written by the angels of God, perhaps. I, I wonder if... Uh, that document might be available for checkout at the library in heaven one day. Is your faith worth writing a book about? And what does he say about this remnant? What does God say about this remnant? Look at verse 17. This is what he says. These, these Israelites, these Jews who have repented and turned to me, they'll be mine. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. They'll be mine. On the day, the day of God's return, the day of the institution of God's kingdom, He's going to make them like jewels, which means to say, excuse me, that He's going to make him his special treasure, his special possession. There will be a special place of honor for the faithful. A special place of honor for the faithful. And then he says, uh, kind of awkwardly, our, our English, we kind of might think twice about this, but it says, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. That word spare there is actually really compassion. It's mercy. It's showing pity toward them. He will show a great measure of compassion, a great measure of mercy upon a faithful son. When I see a, fa- a son following in the footsteps of the father, that father wells up with pride and compassion for his son. There's something special about a faithful son, and it's only natural for a father to want to show compassion to that son. Now, I'm not a father yet, and, uh, and most of you probably laugh at the thought of me changing diapers one day, uh, and rightly so, because I consider that the greatest act of compassion, right? Um, but I, I'm starting to remind myself of what it might be like to, to be a father, and I'm, I'm getting ready for fatherhood one day, and I have a picture that reminds me of this. I wanted to show it to you. Uh, that's our baby. We're pregnant. Yeah. Yeah, we're so excited. I just want to share that with you. 
I'm excited for fatherhood. I'm excited to show compassion on my child. And God is excited to show compassion on His faithful sons and daughters. And my child up there, it's, it's great. Uh, we've already uh, come along quite a ways and the child's been developing. We took another picture right after this and look at the development. It's unbelievable. The, it, there was a, a pennant in the womb. Go A's. I was so excited to find out that, that my father-in-law would not be able to persuade my son or daughter to turn to the angels. It was, it's just exciting to see that. But... Uh, Let's finish up. Last verse. Verse 18. Now we come to the conclusion. Now we come to the conclusion. Then, God says, then, that faithful remnant, then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked. Between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. Then, when you're faithful, When you turn to God, then, and only then, will you begin to see God for who He is. A God of justice. A God of compassion. A God who wants to bless. And you know what's interesting about this verse? That word again there is actually, it's translated as an adverb here, but really it's the same Hebrew verb that we saw all the way back in verse 7. It's the verb shuv, return. It's the verb shuv. Repent. Turn to God. Then when you turn to God, your eyes will be opened and you will see God for who He is. A God who deals with the righteous and who deals with the wicked. He will prove Himself. If you you sense that God has not benefited you, If you sense that the profit in your life from giving to God and sacrificing to God, you've not received enough profit in return, God says remain faithful because in due time, you will see that. You will see that. And that's a promise. If the righteous remnant who repents and turns back to God, if they do this, they will have their questions answered about God's justice. I want to look at some application. What can we pull from this? I I want to note three things that we can pull from this final look into Malachi here. Number one, God honors our tithes. We benefit by giving to Him. That really is a principle of Scripture. That's not a guaranteed promise that you'll benefit right away. But in the end, you will see the fruit of giving to God. Secondly, God is not at your beck and call. It's not beck and call, it's beck and call, I found out this week. God is not there simply to meet all of your personal needs and prayer requests in an instant. He's not a God who just merely fills voids. He's a God of truth. And when you feel that your emotional needs aren't met, when you feel that your physical needs aren't met, Remind yourself, I serve Him not because my needs get met, but because He's the true God. And He will make do on His promises to me. And finally, God will ultimately show compassion on the faithful remnant. He will prove to be a God of justice. He will show compassion on them in the end. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that in your good timing, you will properly judge the righteous and the wicked. In good timing, God, you will in due time bless those who have been faithful in serving you. And God, we, we intend not to turn our backs on you when you do not fill our voids, our emotional needs, our physical needs. We intend instead to rely on the fact that you are the true God. That we follow you because you're truth. Because your son is the way and the truth and the life. We follow your son Jesus Christ because we cannot get to you by any means other than Jesus Christ. Father, take this study of ours, resonate it with our hearts, help us to grow and mature in our faith. In Christ's name, amen.